this morning we'll continue our series through the book of Revelation uh, during this uh, season of Easter with uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles with you and would like to uh, follow along, uh, please feel free to do so. I'll go ahead and read it, though, so we're all together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word of the Lord. I'd like to start uh, my uh, comments this morning um, by sharing with you a, uh, a five-word email I received recently from a colleague. Uh, please... Uh, send a few bullets afterwards. Now, um, that was easy enough for me to interpret in its context. Uh, it's common at CDC, where I work, for them to want you to summarize a meeting afterwards, and oftentimes to do it in, in not literal bullets, but bullets on the text. But if I had been an army ranger behind enemy lines, I might have interpreted that, uh, that email differently. As far as I can tell, no one, at, no one at CDC is asking me to assassinate anyone. Um, but the point of that story is that interpretation actually does matter. Uh, this passage here, this beautiful passage, which has much to teach us about Christian living today and living into the hope uh, that pulls us forward into Christ, uh, has unfortunately uh, been mired sometimes in challenges over various interpretations. Uh, briefly, um, the early church fathers in the few, first few centuries of the church, for the most part, took this to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth um, after he returns. And then basically they took uh, Revelation 19 through 22 as roughly chronologic. Christ returns, Satan is bound, Christ reigns for a thousand years, uh, the final confrontation between good and evil between Satan and his forces in Christ, the judgment, and then the renewal of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, which uh, in that state, there's, there's not, not the kind of separation between heaven and earth that we have now. Um, uh, that was pretty much the way this passage was taken for the first few hundred years of the church. In the fourth century uh, after Christ, uh, there was a change um, to a more of an allegorical interpretation where this thousand years were, was taken really as, a, uh, as something that was a, the spiritual reign of Christ on earth or sometimes variations, the reign of Christ in heaven. And that was uh, 
promoted, um, articulated uh, by a man named Tychonius, uh, but taken up uh, very strongly by St. Augustine, uh, the Bishop of Hippo, and, uh, and, and articulated in his work, City of God. And that pretty much has been the majority view of the church uh, since then, except perhaps for the last uh, few centuries. There are variations on that. Uh, the view that sees the thousand-year reign of Christ as something that comes after Christ's return has been called a premillennial view, millennium being a thousand years. Uh, the view that it's a, more of a spiritual reign of Christ or reign of Christ in heaven is oftentimes referred to as an amillennial view, uh, no millennium. Strictly speaking, it's not saying there's no millennium, but um, it's not uh, seen as a... As a um, uh, as a physical thousand-year reign of Christ. And then a more recent view um, is a post-millennial view, which sees a thousand-year reign of Christ as something that's coming, but it'll become, it will be brought on by progress of the gospel. Things will get better, and after that, Christ will return. Uh, the implication here, before we jump into the text, is that um, where you stand oftentimes depends on where you sit. In the first few centuries of the church, the church was persecuted. And uh, the reign of Christ um, described in this passage seemed like something probably more in the future. Um, in the fourth century, things changed. Under Constantine, uh, the church became not only tolerated, but by 380 AD, uh, at the Edict of Thessalonica, it became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And it could be a lot easier to imagine that the reign of Christ was, was actually here. Now, um, as we have seen through history, uh, Satan still remained active. Um, uh, not so much persecution from outside, but corruption from within the church. But uh, the point is, is that our views on Scripture are sometimes shaped by our philosophical perspectives and by our political or historical realities. So... A quick message before we jump into the text is uh, be suspicious of interpretations that make perfect sense to you, uh, but not to believers in other times and other places. Uh, sometimes we have very particular interpretations that seem to make a whole lot of sense to us and to people like us, uh, but they don't make a lot of sense to others. We should be a little bit suspicious of those views, views that just reinforce the way we already thought about things. And a corollary to that be a little bit more open to interpretations that challenge your preconceptions, even if they don't make a lot of sense to you, because they may help to reveal some of our blind spots. You know, the blind spot in your car is where you can't see. And if you assume there's no car there, uh, it could lead to, to problems. In the same way, we have blind spots as well uh, due to our worldview, our culture. And if we assume that we don't, we can end up with problems. My purpose this morning, though, is not to uh, promote a particular view of the millennium. I'll say I am, I'm firmly premillennial in my views, but uh, to look at this passage from what it teaches us about how we live into our life in Christ today and how we, we live into the hope that we have uh, for the future. And the three elements that I'd like to focus on is, one, the binding of Satan, two, the reign of Christ, and third, the resurrection of the dead. And we'll start with the binding of Satan, which is how this passage starts. 
I should start by saying that the reality of Satan as a personified entity is challenging for some, even for some believers. The concept of a more impersonal uh, evil force uh, tends to be easier for us to accept, at least as 21st century Westerners. But the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly the books of Job and the Gospels, clearly present uh, Satan as a, as a person who talks and dialogues, not the source of all evil, but, uh, but an opponent. And we would do well to pay attention to that. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 2 Corinthians 11.14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, we need to be aware that there is a spiritual force out there uh, that uh, is active in the world and whose actions can have negative impact on us and others. His main tactic, uh, we know, is deception. He deceives the nation. Jesus talks about Satan as the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, let's look a little bit more closely at how this deception works, because Satan's tactics, although they've varied over history, uh, there's some things that uh, have remained the same because, frankly, they seem to work for him. Uh, looking at the first recorded deception of Satan in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, the ancient serpent referred to here in, in Revelation 20, um, was more crafty than any, of the other, than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'd like to take a moment to sort of dissect this, the anatomy of a lie. Uh, Satan, uh, the ancient serpent, starts with an improbable gambit, a statement that uh, no one is likely to believe. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, that would be ludicrous for God to put Adam and Eve in this garden full of fruit trees and tell them not to eat any of it. Can you imagine them watching the fruit fall off the tree, decompose on the ground while they go hungry? It's not like they could order out for pizza or anything. So that's ridiculous. Uh, he does not expect Eve or anyone else to believe this. What he's hoping to do with this opening gambit is to get her unsettled or dislodged even a little bit from the truth, and it works. Uh, Eve responds to him, we may have eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She rejects his false statement, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God said, don't eat of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, because if you do it, it'll kill you. He didn't say anything about touching it. Uh, but Eve moves a little bit from that position of truth, kind of meets Satan somewhere between. And uh, that oftentimes is something that happens to us as well. When the truth of God is challenged uh, or criticized uh, by our 
changing culture, uh, we sometimes make small con concessions, uh, nuanced moves away from it to accommodate our, our views in some way. And we need to be cautious of this. Uh, what happens in this first deception is that Satan takes advantage of that. He sees that Eve has moved a little bit. Um, he's made a false statement that God is totally unreasonable, and she has the satisfaction of having corrected his misunderstanding, but she's also subtly moved in that direction. God is not completely unreasonable, but maybe a, maybe a little bit unreasonable. And then he goes in with, with his bold-faced uh, lie. Uh, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's basically, in the simplest terms, two forms of deception. First is convincing someone to believe something that is not true. But then the second is convincing them to doubt or disbelieve something that is true. And Satan uses both tactics in this statement. Uh, he uh, makes a false assertion uh, that uh, you will not surely die. Basically, what he's saying is, there's something you need that's good for you that God is withholding. Uh, but then he also brings into doubt things that Eve knew were true or ought to have known were true. First of all, God's goodness and love. And second, she didn't need to be like God. She didn't need fruit to be like God. She was created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And Satan has attacked both the character of God and also the image of God with his deception and his lies. Satan is still dividing us, dividing us from God, dividing us from each other with some of the old lies, the same tactics of uh, attacking the character of God and attacking the image of God in us. Uh, one of the common versions of this is that there's something out there that we need to reach our full potential that God's not provided. Something that we need for true self-actualization that God hasn't given us. This is an attack on God's character and it's contrary to God's word. God's word says that he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The second is that there is something I need that others are keeping, keeping from me or trying to take away from me. And the idea here is that God is unable or unwilling to provide enough for all of us. That's also an attack on God's character. James 4, verses 1 and 2, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We do not ask God. God is the one who can provide. Instead, we fight over control. We fight over affection. We fight over possessions. Those are the things that divide us from one another. In this passage in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is said to not only be deceiving individuals, He's said to be deceiving the nations, or in Greek, the ethne, or the peoples. And this is where Satan's work does a world of damage. Um, it leads to racism, nationalism, all the other isms that divide us, because these are actually an attack on the image of God. 
the idea that, um, that the things that are different about us are more important than the things that are common among us. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Since we all bear the image of God, that has got to be more important than the things that are different or distinct about us. This is the lie that Satan puts out there that divides us as people on this planet. And this is even more true within uh, the communion of believers. There's no us and them within the body of Christ because we're all being transformed into the image of Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Since we are all being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, these things that divide us, these distinctions, they're unimportant. Our differences and our distinctions, as Amy preached last Sunday, enable us together to more fully reflect the image of God. But they are irrelevant. They're irrelevant with regard to our identity in Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. I might at risk say for 21st century America, there's no Democrat or Republican. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And these differences, these distinctions, even the sharpest ideologic distinctions are irrelevant to our unity and our identity in Christ. Let's go back to the passage. Satan is bound. Uh, he's bound with a chain, whatever uh, exactly that means. He is thrown into the abyss, and then the abyss is sealed up over him. You know, the idea is Satan is rendered inactive. What that teaches us is that one, Satan's power is limited, and two, that his fate, his doom is assured. Uh, because of that, uh, we can resist him now, which is what the scripture tells us to do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. His power is limited, and his period of time that he's active in this world is also limited. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we can resist his lies. We can stand against him with the truth of God's word, which is what Jesus did when he encountered Satan in the wilderness during that temptation narrative. He used the word of God, the truth of God's word, to encounter the lies uh, that uh, Satan used in attempt to deceive or distract him. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The implications of this teaching about the binding of Satan is, one, spiritual warfare is real, so don't be surprised by it. Sometimes we go out to do something in obedience to the Lord, and then, whoa, whoa, you know, I'm doing something good. You know, why am I encountering trouble? And we're surprised by it, and we sometimes too easily give up. We should not be surprised. Second, 
implication. Satan's main strategy is deception, so don't be deceived. Be careful of what you're hearing. Be careful of what you're thinking, especially things that just seem to reinforce your preconceptions. Go into God's word. Uh, make yourself knowledgeable about his truth. The third implication is we are assured of ultimate victory in Christ, so don't give up. If I could say that again, I'd say don't give up, and I'd say it a third time. Don't give up. That's probably the biggest secret of Christian living, probably the biggest message of the book of Revelation. Do not give up. If you're thinking about giving up, don't do it. Let's move on uh, to Christ's reign, and we won't spend quite as much time there, although I wish I did have more time. This here, this however you interpret the thousand-year reign of Christ, whether you interpret it as a literal thousand years or some long period of time, whether you interpret it as being uh, physical and in the future or something that is present in a spiritual reality or in heaven, uh, whatever it is, it is the full manifestation of the kingdom of God whether on heaven or earth, because the kingdom of God uh, pertains to both. A characteristic of this uh, kingdom, of this reign of Christ, is that believers are co-regents with him. They reign with him. We reign with him. And then they are, uh, believers are mentioned to be priests. This idea of a royal priesthood, um, priests who reign, must be an important idea in the book of Revelation because this is the third time that it's been stated. First was in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, then Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, in the throne room of God, and here in 20, verse 6. This idea of a royal priesthood, priests who reign, and that's, that's who we are to be, that's who we are now. We're called a royal priesthood. The implications here is first, Christ's reign is breaking in wherever his will is done. And that's what we pray in the prayer that the Lord taught us. Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where God's will is done, there his kingdom is coming. And there will be an ultimate fulfillment of that, which is described here in, uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 20. The second implication is that we're destined to be kings and priests. We're destined to reign. We're destined to be in close communion with God. So let's live that way now. And the third implication is that the only perfect political system is the kingdom of God. So let's not obsess over fixing or defending our current political system. We need to find that balance between engagement and disengagement. And historically, the church has sort of kind of gone back and forth. The pendulum has swung. But we do really need to, to look at that, to be engaged, to be in the world, but not of the world. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and our lives focused on glorifying God, knowing that the only perfect system of government is the one that Christ will set up where he's in charge. Finally, I'd like to come to the resurrection of the dead. Now, this passage can be disturbing, uh, confusing to some because it's talking about more than one resurrection. It's talking about the first resurrection, which implies that there's at least a second resurrection. And first of all, I'd like to say, if this is disturbing to you, uh, you're not alone. Um, uh, many people have struggled with this. Uh, but I would also say that this is not the first time that this idea is presented. 
Jesus in John chapter 5 says, Do not marvel, marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to, to, the, uh, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here Jesus is talking about two types of resurrection in a way, resurrection to life for those who are in him and resurrection to judgment for those who are not. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is our classic text on the resurrection, says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this passage in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, we have a resurrection of believers, particularly those uh, who have uh, suffered during this uh, period of tribula tribulation that's been described in the previous chapters, but resurrection of believers at the beginning and then everyone else at the end of the thousand years. Again, I'm not going to press how you interpret that, how you make sense out of that, but just to say that um, that's what is meant by the first resurrection and the second resurrection. If the first and second resurrection are a little bit confusing, uh, the first and second death that are mentioned here are a little bit more straightforward. The first death we're unfortunately all too familiar with, um, physical death. The second death we don't have to be kept guessing because later on in this chapter it's clearly defined. Revelation 20 verse 14 then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If we didn't get it from that passage, it's repeated essentially in chapter 21, verse 8, I believe. So, if the resurrection happens, uh, what does that mean? Uh, what is the implication? Well, a uh, key implication is that we were created to be in bodies. You know, oftentimes we'll say body, mind, and spirit. But we were created to be in bodies, not to be uh, disembodied spirits. And the embodiment that's described here and in 1 Corinthians 15, that is the eternal state that we're looking forward to. Not as disembodied spirits, but as beings that are in bodies, spirits that are connected to bodies. But these are different kind of bodies than the ones that we have now. These are resurrection bodies. And what we can say about the resurrection body is first that Christ is the first fruits, as I read just a little bit ago from that section from 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is the first fruits, then we know that our resurrection bodies will be in some ways like him. 1 John 3 2 says this Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The second thing that we can say about resurrection bodies is that uh, there is a relationship to our current bodies. And Paul describes this, uses the analogy of a seed and a plant. In Corinthians chapter 15, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. 
and to each kind of seed its own body. There'll be some relationship with the bodies that we have now, but they'll be different, just like a plant is different than the seed. The third thing that we can say about our resurrection bodies is that they're imperishable. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I'd like to wrap up with some implications of the resurrection of the dead. First of all, our bodies are good. God meant for us to be in bodies. Uh, but they are, in their current form, imperfect. I don't think I have to convince uh, any of us over the age of 40 that that is the case. Um, so the implication is take care of them. They're good. But don't obsess over them because they're not going to last forever. And they'll be replaced with, uh, with uh, body 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> By corollary... The whole physical universe is also good, but it also is imperfect. We need to take care of it because that's the work that God gave us. That was the first commission of humankind. But don't obsess over it. God is going to fix it uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. The third is Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life, and that is our Easter message. That's what we've been celebrating uh, for these last seven weeks, and we will continue to celebrate. This is what we remind ourselves every time that we take communion. Fourth, the body, bodily resurrection is central to our hope in Christ, and we would do well not to forget it. That is our hope. Because of that, implication number five, we need not fear death, age, or infirmity. And all suffering that we experience now is only temporary. I'd like to wrap up with a quote from Charles Spurgeon pertaining to the first resurrection. And when they rise, they shall leave the old Adam behind them. Blessed day. One of the most blessed parts of heaven, of heaven above or of heaven below, will be freedom from the tendency to sin. A total death to that old nature, which has been our plague and woe. Amen.